the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions, pretty much anything that's on your heart or mind. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, just send in your questions that way. If you are driving in your car, the, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. There's only one button to push, and then you can use the hands-free feature of your phone, and you'll be safe. One more time for the main number. It's 340-9585. It's Tuesday. don't have anything to talk about other than the show, so let's go to some questions while we await your phone calls. Um, This is an anonymous question. It says, uh, Pastor Ron, is using pornography grounds for the offended spouse to divorce? Um, My answer's not very popular on this. I've gotten, uh, I've had this question several times in the past, anonymous. Uh, and and I do not believe it is. It's not unfaithful when Jesus was talking about if you've looked at a woman with lust, you're guilty of adultery. Remember, that's in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's trying to go above and beyond the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And his whole point in the Sermon on the Mount is if you want to get to heaven without believing in me, this is the only way to do it. You've got to be perfect. Not only perfect in the letter of the law, but the spirit behind the law. And so those were really, really radical words. But that does not elevate pornography to the same level as the, um, uh, the act, the physical act of having sex with somebody which violates the marriage covenant. Now, Anonymous, I want to make sure you understand my heart here. Pornography is a wicked thing. It does terrible, terrible damage uh, in the world that we live in. Uh, kids younger and younger and younger are being exposed to things that they're not yet ready to have to deal with. Um, men who look at pornography, and unfortunately it's not just the male problem, but typically the offender is male. Um, and it, it it creates a situation where he's putting his wife in an impossible situation. Uh, there's no way the wife can ever compete with images that go through our mind. There's no way that a wife can compete with uh, typically the kind of women that are demonstrated on pornographic videos. Um, So so it it causes a lot of damage. Now, for the man who is engaged in pornography, he needs to understand that he's going to stand before the Lord and give account 
of how he encouraged, how he blessed the woman that he promised God he would love and cherish. He's going to have to answer the question, how could you put her in a position where the enemy could attack her? Instead of making her feel beautiful by you being engaged in pornography, you're making her feel like she will never measure up. Just the opposite that we're supposed to do. But is it grounds for divorce? I really don't believe that it is. It's a terrible thing, but I think at some point we've got to be in a place where we understand that much more damage is done when the physical act of sex occurs in violation of the marriage vow than with pornography. Again, that's not excusing pornography. It's a terrible, terrible problem in our country, it's a terrible, terrible problem even in the Church of Jesus Christ. But it's not grounds for divorce. I think sometimes, anonymous, we have people just looking for a way out of the marriage. And I think sometimes God simply wants you to hang in there and pray and you get closer to Jesus. Use this pain that you're experiencing as a motivation to get so close to Jesus because he's the only one that can help you through these kinds of things. So yeah, it's a terrible thing, but not grounds for divorce. Hope that makes sense to you and hope you're not angry with me. Uh, Phil writes, what exactly is meant by walking in the spirit? Phil, good question. You know, we, we use such Christianese language, you know, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Holy Ghost, those kind of things. But to walk in the Spirit means to walk according to the will of God, to walk, and the only way you can do that, of course, is to be empowered by the Spirit, to walk in the likeness of God. The Apostle John says he is light, and in there's no darkness at all. And then he concludes that that means we have to walk in the light because he's the light. So it means to walk in the light. Um, it means to be with Jesus. And then the power of God is available to you in everything that you do. So, Phil, here's what I'd like to close with in terms of answering your question. The man or the woman who's walking in the Spirit, those lives are going to be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and that goodness means God-likeness. Um, we're going to be men and women who are, our lives look like those things. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And when you're walking in the Spirit, that's the kind of fruit that's going to come out. Faithfulness and self-control. Those are all fruits of the Spirit, Phil. So when you're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, your life is going to look like that. Galatians chapter 5, if you'll compare the verses, starting in verse 19, that's what it looks like when a man is walking according to the flesh. Go down to verse 22. And that's what it looks like when a man is walking by the power of the Spirit. When we're doing that, Everybody will know that we belong to Jesus. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Daniel says, I know we all have different ideas about faith, but what is the gift of faith? Daniel, that's a great question too. Um, the gift of faith is a little bit, it's, it's not saving faith. I mean, that's a gift. Ephesians 2 says that, that uh, um, we're saved by grace through faith, and that, not of ourselves, it, the faith, is a gift from God. So, so the fact that we can believe in Jesus is a gift of, of faith. However, in the context of the gift of faith that you're going to read about in uh, other passages of Scripture, and most notably Romans or 1 Corinthians, it's just the ability to trust the Lord, no matter what you do, no matter what's going on in your life. It's a gift given from God to say, okay, I trust you. 
Now, I, I say this often, Daniel, but faith is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. And so when we get saved, the moment we get saved, Jesus is sort of leading us along, teaching us to trust him. At first, they're little baby steps of faith. They may not seem like it to us because we're babies in the Lord, but they're little baby steps of faith. And when you take those little steps of faith and God shows off for you, when God shows up, then you can't wait to take the next one and take a little bigger step and a little bigger step and a little bigger step. And pretty soon, if your practice is walking by faith, you're going to soon get to the place, Daniel, where um, it simply doesn't make sense not to say yes to the Lord. You know, I was sharing uh, with our church not long ago um, I look back on in, on my years walking with the Lord, and and right now the things that I look back on that happened 24 years ago when we first got to Texas, uh, or or even before we left for Texas, God asking us to drop everything in California and come here. Um, that took the gift of faith. I had a choice. God said go. I had a choice. And even at that point, early in my walk with the Lord, I had experienced seeing the hand of God in my life, so I didn't want to miss out on anything. And I realized that if God calls, and I call him Lord, then I'm going to do what he says. And I remember taking these little steps of faith, but they seemed like huge steps of faith back then. And now, after 24 years here, I, I, I look at the things that God is asking us to do now. And by the way, Daniel, he never gives you a rest from this. You know, you'd like to think, well, okay, I was faithful back then. I had the gift of faith and I did it. So now, Lord, Lord you're going to give me a break. He never does. He's always in the process of sanctifying you, always in the process of wanting you to trust him more and more and more. And honestly, as big as the steps of faith are today, they don't seem as difficult as they did a long time ago. And that's because I was sort of in faith training at the beginning. I remember our very first time at the at the uh, dealing with radio here in San Antonio. I mean, this was in our first year here. I'd gathered together four Calvary Chapel pastors, really well-known guys. Uh, Raul Reese was one of them. And and uh, I wanted some Bible teaching on the local radio, so I arranged, uh, on this very station, I arranged for um, a, a group of four pastors. We called it the Calvary Connection. And um, those four guys had a half-hour radio program here. Uh, three of them went back to back to back, and then the other one was in the evening. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it was in the morning. And f- one day we, we heard from, from Raul Reese that he couldn't, um, he couldn't do it. He just had some financial issues that he had to deal with. And he, his people called and said, you know, we're just not going to be able to do it. Sorry. And I said, but you, you, it's supposed to start today. You can't stop now. Well, we just can't do it. And I remember the Lord speaking to my heart saying, you pay for Rawls' program. Now, he had a church of 15,000 people. I had a church of 15 people. We couldn't pay our rent. We didn't have food. And yet the Lord said, you pay for Rawls' program. I thought that was the silliest thing ever. Uh, when Paula heard me talking to the radio station and saying that, that okay, we'll, we'll pay for Rawls' program, um, the look on her face, she thought I'd absolutely gone mad. Um, but, but it was a step of faith that seemed impossible, but God provided every month for that radio program. And then it was a year after that that I went on the radio myself. So it's just God preparing me for things. And that's the way he does it. He doesn't ask you to take these huge, huge steps of faith at the beginning. But by the time you take those huge steps of faith, you're ready for them. And God always shows up, Daniel. So that's the gift of faith. Trusting that God will do what he said he was going to do, no matter how difficult the circumstances appear. That's the gift of faith. Thanks for the question. I love talking about it. I've got faith stories and God showing up at just the right time stories, Daniel, uh, that I could spend a day and a half 
just talking about nothing except what God has done. And I think the whole idea behind the gift of faith is to get us all to the place where we have those God stories. And when God asks you to do something that seems impossible, you think, well, it's just another impossible thing that you've made possible, Lord. So that's what it's done. Michael says, Pastor Ron, will you please explain the end times and what order things are going to happen? Uh, Michael, I'll do my best. Um, uh, as if you've been listening to this program, Michael, you know I believe that we are in the last of the last days. I believe that Jesus is coming back soon. He could come back at any moment. Um, but but if he doesn't, then we're to occupy till he comes. Um, so the next event, um, as it relates to the, the last days, the very last days, is the rapture of the church. So the first thing that's going to happen is the rapture of the church. One day we'll be, whatever it is we're doing, we'll be there and suddenly we'll be gone, we'll be with Jesus. I can't wait for that moment, Michael. Uh, the next thing that's going to happen is the world, of course, is going to be in absolute shock over the disappearance of of uh, millions upon millions of Christians. They're going to um, um, sort of spin the story and the Christians are going to get the blame. It's going to be one of those things, oh, they were abducted by aliens. They're all, the, the, the world is ready to, to move on and they couldn't. the world couldn't move on with those fundamentalist Christians kind of thing. Uh, and then there's going to be a man who appears on the world scene. Now, this is why we who are believers, Daniel, shouldn't worry too much about who the Antichrist is. He's not going to be revealed until we're taken away. When we're taken away, then he's going to be revealed, and he's going to promise peace and safety. He's going to be the most charismatic leader the world has ever seen. He's going to be empowered satanically, uh, and he's going to be Time Magazine's Man of the Year every year that he's he's uh, in power. Um, and the world is going to believe his lies, and the Great Tribulation is going to start. Great Tribulation is a period of time, seven years. There will be a peace treaty. I believe the covenant is going to allow Israel to rebuild the temple right next to the Muslim shrine that's in Jerusalem right now on the place that is adjacent to Solomon's temple. And then the Great Tribulation is going to break out for seven years. Things are going to be on this world like never before. There's never been a time as bad, Bible says, nor will there ever be a time this bad in the future. And there will be seven seals of judgment, those coming in the first half of the Great Tribulation. Then there will be seven bowls. Um, I'm sorry, seven trumpets will come next. Those are are, uh, after the midway point of the Great Tribulation. And then finally, there will be uh, the, the seven bowl judgments or vile judgments. And the world is going to come to an end. Revelation chapter 19 speaks of the time uh, when that's going to stop. And it will stop only when Jesus comes to earth. We'll be with him, Michael. Uh, he will destroy his enemies with the word. Uh, there will be a short period of time where there's cleanup, the great supper of the Lamb, meaning... Uh, all the birds of the air are going to come and clean all the carcasses and clean the world of of, uh, of the human flesh. Uh, and then Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. And we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are up, then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth created. This world, world is going to be destroyed. All judgment will have been accomplished. And we will be forever and ever with Jesus. So I hope that's chronology is clear, Michael. It's pretty important doctrine. I think it's something that we Christians uh, don't think about or talk about enough. Reggie says, how can Christians hold to any absolute truth in a world where truth changes so quickly? Uh, Reggie, unfortunately, there are some Christians who aren't holding on to the absolute truth. And, and let me make a small correction in the way you phrased your question. A truth never changes. Our perception of truth changes. Paul and I were watching something last night where somebody said, well, uh, his truth 
or maybe it was a girl, her truth. Well, there's no his truth or her truth. There's only the truth. And by definition, the truth is mutually exclusive. There can't be anything else that's true if it contradicts that which is true. And so the way we hold to absolute truth is we hold on to God's Word, we hold on to Jesus. We don't allow ourselves to be influenced or affected by the people in this world. And Reggie, just logically, doesn't it make sense if something was true 2,000 years ago, it's still true today? What goes up must come down. It was true before, it's true now. Now, the problem is, we change truth to suit our needs. We convince ourselves that truth is relative. Well, Christians have to be the men and the women who stand immovable, unshakable. And the truth, Jesus says, sets us free. That doesn't mean that we'll be popular. It certainly doesn't mean that the world is going to like us. But it's still true. I had somebody tell me not too awful long ago, Reggie, that, uh, um, well, I just don't believe in hell because I can't believe a loving God would send people to hell. And I told him, I said, well, whether or not you believe it doesn't make it any less true. And because the stakes are so high, you need to find out what's true. And we live in a world where our opinions mean so much, where we want to voice them, um, where we're taught in this culture to value our opinions. The only opinion that matters, Reggie, is Jesus. The only one that matters is Jesus. So I hope that answers your question. Let's go to Hugh calling from Kerrville on line one. Hugh, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor. How are you, sir? Hi, Hugh. Uh, quick question. In that timeline you just described, uh-huh. where is Ezekiel 38 and 39 going to happen in that timeline? And uh, I'll listen to you on the radio. Thank you, Hugh. appreciate the call very, very much. You know, okay. uh, Ezekiel 38, uh, thank you, Hugh. Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, there is a, a wide difference of opinion about where those things happen. I personally believe, Hugh, they happen after the rapture of the church. There are some, I think this is a minority position, but there are some who are looking for Ezekiel's 38 and 39 to happen before the rapture of the church, sort of as a last sign. Uh, I, I personally don't think that's the case. Uh, I actually think, here's something that, that uh, maybe you can hold on to. Uh, I think the thing that we might see as Christians that would signal that, boy, it's now time, is the destruction of Syria. You know, Syria is a world power now, um, uh, an evil, evil, evil man um, in, in Syria. Um, it says that Damascus, the Bible says, can be destroyed in a single night. Now, we know that hasn't happened yet. So I'm thinking that is something that probably will happen before the great tribulation or before the rapture of the church. Uh, but but I'm I'm thinking Ezekiel 38 and 39 is is almost at least from my perspective, Hugh, it's almost certainly um, going to happen um, after the rapture of the church. Thanks for calling, Hugh. Let's go to San Antonio now and talk with Tammy online too. Tammy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I listen to you and your wife uh, all the time coming home from work. Oh. And I have a question. Um, I think I've heard you say, if you ever doubt that you're a Christian, you're probably not. And um, I don't know if that's, if I heard that correctly. And if so, then maybe I've been living a lie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll get off the, and let you elaborate on that unless you have a question you want to ask me before I hang up. No, I, I got it, Tammy. Thank you very, very much. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that's uh, too general. Um, I, I said sometimes uh, when we have doubt, it's because the way we're living our lives. If, if our lives aren't characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, certainly not intending that we have perfection. But, 
you know, the Bible says if we abide in Christ, he will abide in us. And there's nobody ever who's abiding in Christ who has any doubts about their salvation. So I think, Tammy, the best way to approach this is if you are having doubts about your salvation, there's one of two sources, one of two possibilities. One is that the enemy's lying to you, and then you've got to hold on by faith to what the Word of God says, taking those thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. Um, that's just normal spiritual warfare. But the other one is, I think it's a good thing. Our Bibles are written to make anybody who's living in sin feel insecure in their salvation. Um, very important to understand that. I think if, if, you're, if you're living in willful sin, you can't read First Corinthians or Galatians and, and not worry about whether or not you're really saved. So I think most of the time when those doubts come in, that's a good time for us to examine ourselves. Paul says that we're to do that daily to make sure that we're in the faith. And if we're walking with the Lord, um, I, again, I don't think there's any doubt at all. Um, Timmy, I'm going to work on this on the other side of the break as well. I don't want to cut it short. It's a very, very important question. We have 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word of Santa for Life. I'm Ron Arbaugh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions tammy i want to get right back to your 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 question um when I say things at times, they, 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 you have to be pay very careful attention to the context. And uh, I did not mean, uh, nor did I ever intend to imply, that anybody who has doubts uh, probably isn't a Christian. W- what I have said many, many times, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you're living in willful sin, and it's not bothering you, then you're probably not a Christian. On the other hand, uh, it's important that we understand, as I mentioned before the break, the nature of spiritual warfare. The devil's always going to, to be blasting you with, with questions and doubts. Did God really say those kind of things? It worked for, for Eve in the garden. Um, it didn't work on Jesus, on the, the, the wilderness temptation. But, but too often it works on us. So here's what I want you to do, and this is really an important thing to practice every day. Know who you are in Christ. Know how valuable you are to Him, how much He loves you. And then when the doubts come, and they'll come from this outside source that I just spoke about, but then you got to say, no, He already proved He loved me. I mean, think about this, Tammy. He, he, he thought about you when He was on the cross. In the parable of the Pearl of Great Price, it says when he found one, he sold everything he had and purchased that pearl. Well, you're the Pearl of Great Price. And when we walk in the assurance of our salvation, we close all those doors for the enemy. We close all of those doors. And Jesus wants us to be secure. So abiding in him, Jesus said, if we do that, then we'll never have any doubts about our salvation. It's only when we're walking away from Jesus we're in those danger zones. You know, Tammy, I'm going to invite you, and I don't know where you are, and I'm certainly not trying to get anybody to come to leave a good church and come to our church. But this Friday night, I'm going to be teaching on the passage in Hebrews chapter 6. It's actually going to start in chapter 5 and go through the first 12 verses of chapter 6 that causes so many people anxiety about losing their salvation. And um, you can watch it at calvarysa.com. But but my hope and prayer is that everybody leaves uh, here Friday night knowing exactly how secure they are in Christ and what that passage really says. So again, get to know Jesus. Again, I'm not implying you're not a Christian, but get to know him so well 
that you know that he thinks about you all day. How precious are your thoughts toward me. How vast the sum of them. That's what David wrote in the Psalms. How much more you and me that he lives in. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You've got to hold on to those promises. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And that's about as secure as it's possible to be. And you know what? I really think it hurts Jesus' heart when we doubt his faithfulness. And that's really what we're doing when we doubt our salvation. We get so disappointed in ourselves. We mess up. Maybe we've broken a promise to God again. And the enemy's right there to pound you. What you've got to do is hold on to what you know. Don't ever let go of something you know for sure for something you're not sure of. My last thought on this one, Tammy. Um, learn to really appreciate the closeness and the intimacy with Jesus. And I will say this categorically. If doubting your salvation is a normal part of your walk, You're probably not in the Word enough. Probably not talking to Jesus enough. Because when you're in the Word and when you're talking to Him, He's going to wrap His arms around you and hold you so close that you're going to know to whom you belong. Tammy, I've been saved now 28 years. And I've never once in 28 years, had a moment of doubt about my salvation. I know that's unique, but never once. My conversion experience was so profound. If if he forgave me, if he meant me the way he meant me, how could I ever doubt that again? And even though that's true, uh, as a pastor and somebody who does this radio show, you know, the devil, he screams at me all the time. How do you know it's true? What if you mislead somebody? All those kind of things. And then I have to remember that he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it. It doesn't say that I'll have to complete it or I have to get better. Just Jesus will finish his work. So, Tammy, God bless you. And please understand how much it means to God that we would simply say, Lord, I trust you. I'm never going to listen to that lie again. 340-9585, 340-9585, here's a question from Andrea. That's right, in 2 Thessalonians 2.6, what is the restrainer? A friend says it's the Holy Spirit, but God can't be taken away. Um, Andrea, your friend is sort of right. Uh, you're right, God is omnipotent and he's omnipresent, so uh, he, he's everywhere at the same time. But when the restrainer, the one who's holding back the lawless one, the, the, the man that we know is the Antichrist, the restrainer that's holding him back is the Holy Spirit working through the church of Jesus Christ. So when he's taken out of the way as a reference to the rapture of the church, and um, the idea there is that when the church of Jesus Christ, when the light goes out, you know, we're to be salt and we're to be light. Salt is a preserving agent. Uh, light uh, keeps us from falling and stumbling. But when the church is taken out of here and the world completely given over to evil, well, then there's no light left. And the church is being used by God to restrain the power of evil. And I know that sounds silly to us because there's so much evil, but imagine how much worse it would be if there was no light at all. And yet, we pesky Christians, we're that light, and people don't like looking at us. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're the ones who are keeping the the, the man that we call the Antichrist away from coming. And until we're taken out of the way, he won't be revealed. So that's what it is. You're right about God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, He cannot be anywhere but everywhere. I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Andrea, for the question. Let's go to Jarrett calling from Bernie on line one. Jarrett, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. I was calling. I had a question about uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. 
is that did Jesus go down and judge uh, the demons? And I just wanted to get your thought on on that that particular verse um, in the Bible. I can do it. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate it very, very much. Chapter 3, verse 19. Let me read it here. Um, I'm going to go back to 18. Verse 18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And then it says, He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom He also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, uh, what Peter's doing in this chapter, Jared, is giving us reasons to have hope. In, in the middle of all the things that are going on, reasons to have hope. Now, evidently what happened, Jesus went in a pre-resurrection state uh, after his death, put into the grave, into what we call Hades. Um, um, maybe not the best term, but into the abyss. And he preached a message to those who were uh, being held uh, in, in that place. Now, we also know that in that place, we know this from Luke chapter 16, there were two compartments. One was a place where people were being tormented. The other was a place called paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in para- paradise. So what he was talking about here, the spirits in verse 19, probably refers to the spirits of humans and possibly also of demons. I think that's the case. In the early church, in the first and second century, there was almost universal acceptance that the identity of these spirits uh, could be found in the fallen angels of Genesis 6 who did not keep their first estate. There's lots of differing opinions about Genesis chapter 6. I don't want to confuse this. But the early church believed that Peter was referring to them. Uh, If you read Jude verse 6, um, I, I think there's even more understanding there. Now, he says, it says in the next verse, those are the ones who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So, um, it doesn't mean, Jared, that those people were given a second chance, those who were being held in torment. It doesn't mean they were given a second chance. What Jesus did when he went down into the center of the earth and preached to them was to declare a victory. I have conquered death. And the people that Noah preached to, um, they heard the message, they saw him work. God always has a witness. Noah was that witness. And they rejected his message. And I think what Jesus says to them um, in the process of this this magnificent victory declaration, is you had your chance, you missed it, and then they would watch as Jesus held the took the other compartment, those in paradise. And the Bible says they took captivity captive. In other words, they were held in paradise. It's a wonderful place, but nonetheless, they were held in paradise. But but everybody being held in torment, and there are people still being held in that compartment in torment. Um, they would have seen the victory celebration of all of those faithful saints being led to heaven by Jesus. So that's what it was. It wasn't a second chance at salvation. Uh, He wasn't sharing the gospel with them. He was simply declaring victory. And I've said many times, Jared, on this program, that uh, everybody who gets judged eternally is going to be judged righteously. Nobody's going to be surprised. They're going to know they're guilty. And when Jesus went down and declared victory, uh, he was simply saying, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So that was what that was all about. Thank you very much, Jarrett, for the phone call. Um, Wes wants to know, I've got two uh, sort of rapture questions in a row, the one about the restrainer of the Holy Spirit. And this one from Wes, he says, when the rapture happens, will backslidden Christians be left behind? Uh, Wes, everybody who is a real Christian is going to go to heaven and be with Jesus in the rapture of the church. Not perfect Christians, but just real Christians. And see, only God knows their hearts. He knows their hearts perfectly. So 
Um, doesn't mean that somebody who is who is committing a sin or somebody who has uh, fallen away for a short period of time isn't going to be taken with the Lord. It just means that they're not going to be receiving the the, the rewards that they hope to get. It's it's pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, but but everybody who's a real Christian um, will go to heaven and be with Jesus. It's not a partial rapture. It's not okay. Um, I'll take you, but you're on probation kind of thing. Um, the rapture is our being gathered to Jesus in the air, being taken away from the place of God's wrath being poured out, and being with Jesus and going to the wedding banquet that he's prepared for. But everybody who's a real Christian, not just people who say they're Christians, Wes, but everybody who is a real Christian, that means by definition they're born again, their heart is to please the Lord. And it also means that when we mess up, instead of just chalking it off to being backslidden, it means that we really hate our sin. And I think that's the, the real difference. You know, David, uh, it's always astonishing to us Wes David is called a man after God's own heart. The horrible things that he did and the mistakes that he kept on making. But David so hated his sin. He's the best repenter, I think, in the history of the world. And and I think that's a great model for all of us. When we sin against God, it ought to devastate us. And it ought to drive us to the, to our knees to say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And then he, of course, does. And our fellowship is completely restored. So that's going to be um, the situation at the rapture. Everybody who is really born again is going to go. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from. Wait, I got it here. Um. Mobile, from our mobile app that just came in anonymously. Uh, your comment, please, on the book and movie Heaven is for Real. Um, now, I'm not sure, Anonymous, if it's the one I'm thinking of. It's just a little boy um, who um, claims to have been taken to heaven. Um, um, the answer to the question is no, it's not. Uh, in fact, the um, if that's the right movie or book that I'm thinking of, it is. I just, my producer just told me. Um, uh, it, th- th- they've already admitted that uh, the book was um, um, made up. Um, it was a sort of a father-son plot. Um, those movies are not real. You know, they sell, and so many Christians bought the book and bought the movie, or bought a ticket for the movie. Um, and then when we find out that it's not real and they lied to us, it, it's devastating. Uh, I think if you know your Bible, Anonymous, um, you'd know those things aren't real. The Apostle Paul was taken to heaven. We know that's real. We have it in Second Corinthians chapter 12. He was taken to heaven dead. And he said there that he saw things, inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Now, that's pretty definitive. If man's not permitted to tell what he saw in heaven, then people who've gone to heaven and then come back and tell us all those things, well, we can categorically disqualify that from being a genuine experience. Now, I personally believe that God has taken men besides Paul to heaven, but we just don't know about it because man's not permitted to tell. But but these books, um, the, the movies... Uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven. There's another one, 90 Minutes in Hell. Um, um, it's just the silliness that Christians are gullible and we fall um, We fall for. So it is not real. Uh, it, it has already been debunked. I think now if you uh, were to Google uh, the book, Heaven is for Real, um, is it true, uh, then you'd probably connect it to the denials and the and the uh, the way things played out. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls. Here's a question from Devin. He says, "Since God made all of us, 
How could he condemn homosexuality if he made people that way? Devin, you need to stop and think. Now, before you ask a question that way, you know, people will say, well, I've known I was gay from the time I was born or from the time I was one. We get all these fantastic stories. Um, but remember, God didn't make us gay. Now, there are people who have same-sex attraction, and they certainly didn't do it, and most of them didn't want it. But it's just the way it is. We live in a fallen world, and that's the way. It's just, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of sexual perverts, uh, and I'm not using that to, to, to describe the homosexual community. I'm just saying there are perversions, sexual perversions, that um, uh, happen in heterosexual relationships. That's certainly not God's will or God's way either. Now, here's what I want you to think about, Devin. God didn't make you, and he didn't make me. God made only two people, Adam and he made Eve, by the finger of God, just two. The rest of us were, were created by a process that God created to populate the earth. So Adam and Eve, made by the finger of God, didn't have DNA from fallen parents or grandparents. They weren't exposed initially, Adam and Eve weren't, to evil in this world. But we are. So we're a process of the creation, but God didn't create us. So when we say, well, God made me this way, he must want me to be this way, that's just an excuse that we use to justify sin. Truth is, Devin, people don't get saved because they don't want to stop sinning. So instead of asking, how can God condemn homosexuality? All you have to do is look in the Bible where he condemns it. It's not how he can do it. It's that he did it. And then if we're honest, we realize that we make our own choices. Now, same-sex attraction is not necessarily a choice. But the choice to respond to that attraction is the choice to live in what we know God calls sin is a choice we make every day. I can make a choice to love my wife the way Christ loved the church, or I can make the choice every day to treat her unkindly. If I treat her unkindly, it's not because God made me a jerk. Truth is, I'm a jerk because that's what happens when we give in to our flesh. So God didn't make people homosexuals. Homosexuality is a result of the fallen world that we live in. Now, you didn't ask this question, Devin, but I'm going to respond to it. What should people with same-sex attraction do um, if they realize that this is a lifestyle that God condemns? Well, they've got to make a choice about whether they're going to live for Jesus or live for themselves. And if you think about it, Devin, it's the exact same choice that heterosexuals who are single have to make every single day. There's nothing new under the sun. So the fact that that people are homosexual or heterosexual, they still have to make a choice what they're going to do with their sexuality. And the truth is, whether you're single and a heterosexual or single and a homosexual, you've got to choose to be obedient to the Lord or you're going to pay the eternal consequence for it. The Bible says clearly regarding homosexuality, Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, chapter six people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So they got a choice to make, don't they? Satisfy flesh or be pleasing to Jesus. And the people that make the choice to please the Lord are truly, truly blessed. Do they have to live without sex? Yeah, they do. But we've made sex an idol in our world. We demand our right to give in to our fleshy desires. We have no right to do that. God alone makes the rules. So, Devin, hope that helps. Here's an anonymous question. Um, Probably our last one of the day. We're at a little over two minutes. Um... Pastor Ron, why would God let the devil loose at the end of the thousand years? 
That makes no sense to me. You know, Anonymous, I think it makes no sense to all of us, but the devil is going to be let loose for a very important reason. You've heard me talk about choice. I just talk about choice in in terms of how we live. Um, But um, the people that live in the millennial reign of Christ on earth will for a thousand years, and, and people live the entire thousand years, most people will, um, they're, they're never going to have the free will choice to rebel against God. Jesus is going to rule with an iron scepter. Judgment will be swift and it will be sure. There will be no doubt on the earth during the thousand years that Jesus is in complete charge. And yet God doesn't force anybody. So at the end of the thousand years, the devil is going to be let loose and he's going to tempt people to turn on God again. Imagine after living in a perfect world, a righteous world, a perfectly just world, for a thousand years, the devil is still going to create such dissatisfaction that those who rebel against God are said to be as numerous as the sand on the seashores. They will have to make a choice. Listen to the enemy or serve God. And while we'd like to think everybody after living in that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth would be thrilled with serving God, they're going to want to satisfy self. And it's going to be proof that the problem was never our environment. The problem was never getting bad breaks. The problem was always us. The truth is we like to sin. So Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. It's simply to give people a choice. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh Calvary Chapel San, from Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. See you at 4. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.